Hey, 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 closet busters and bold move makers. It is time once again for Life Uncloset. So I want you to gather around because it is time once again to kick down those closet doors of your life. We're here to escape our BS, explore our fears, and elevate our self-expression. I'm your host, Rick Clemens. I'm the bold move expert and that coming out guy who's going to take you to the party, the pulpit, the wake, and back to the party of living your life uncloseted. So come on along with me and grab hold of yourself and get ready to step out, step up, and step into facing your fears, making your bold moves, and living life without apologies. Now let's get to the show. Hey, 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 closet dwellers and bold move makers. It's time once again for Life Uncloseted. And today we are going to bust through some doors of some stuff that sometimes isn't really easy to talk about, but it needs to be. And you guys have heard me talk about my own battles with depression. I talked to some people about suicide attempts. I have gone through some of this in my own life with friends and stuff. And I just want to say, I want you to just step into a space where you imagine yourself in this place of deep depression and you know that suicide runs in your family you probably contemplate suicide almost as often as you change your underwear and then i want you to imagine that you find a way to move through life by using humor to inspire hope and laughter to save your own life and to save the life of others and that's who we're bringing to our conversation today he's a fellow speaker friend of mine his name is frank king and he speaks on suicide prevention and he's a trainer on all of that as well and he brings the funny part of this from being a writer on the tonight show for 20 years but he also brings that really personal space of suffering with depressive disorder and chronic suicidability and i just want to say this is a subject that I wish we would talk about more, and this is why I wanted to bring Frank onto the show. And thank you, Kelly Jakes, for introducing us. Kelly was on the podcast not long ago um, with another fellow speaker, and I love that we are having this conversation today. So, Frank, welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, and you know what, Rick? Uh, you know this, but the listeners don't know this yet. I am literally in the closet, and I, I'm, I know <laughs> I'm not gay. Uh, not anything wrong with that, as Seinfeld would say. But, yeah. Um, we were talking because I, I was trying to record, I'm, I'm voicing an audio book and I'm right. trying to record it in my living room and it just, the sound was bouncing here and there yeah. and somebody suggested your closet. So I don't know if you've ever had a guest who was actually in the closet on your, out of the closet. Show. I have. I have interviewed a few people who have been sitting in their closets, most of them literally surrounded by clothes. Um, and folks, if you ever want to start a podcast, that is actually the perfect place to start recording podcasts is in the closet because your clothes muffle the sound, gives you a really rich um, sound quality and um, almost like being in a studio. So, um, so yeah, thanks for sharing that, man. And thanks for coming out of the closet or being in the closet with me for this show because as you and I were talking before we jumped on here, this is really something that needs to be talked about. In fact, you brought forward a, a statistic of what was the number again of how many people attempt suicide or succeed? It's 47,000 people a year, works out to about one every 12 minutes in the U.S. Mm, mm, mm. That's just uh, such a, a, just a shocking number to me. And um, being somebody who myself has suffered with depression and I've only, I've only thought about suicide once and well, I can't say just once, but only thought about really taking that step one time. And that was literally when I came out of the closet and I was driving home and people who've listened to this know this story a little bit, but we'll repeat it real quick before we dive into your story. I was driving from the airport. I had just landed um, in Los Angeles. I had flown from London to Los Angeles knowing that I was about to go come out to my wife 
And there are about four opportunities on that freeway where I looked in the rearview mirror and saw semi trucks right in the lane next to me. And I thought, man, it could be so easy to just turn that wheel and nobody would ever know the difference. And um, so been there, but um, this is something that you have really turned into your life work. So let's talk about where this all started for you, man. Well, you know, I've been doing stand-up comedy since day after Christmas 1985. My lovely wife and my girlfriend and I went on the road. This is kind uh-huh. of the beginning of the comedy boom. Yep, yep. Went on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Wow. No home. And I always wanted to make a living, which I did at stand-up comedy, but I also wanted to make a difference. I just could never figure out what I had to tell or teach anybody. I didn't really have any learning objectives or outcomes or, you know, takeaways. And, Mm -hmm. and with the recession, eight, nine and 10, the speaking business for me dropped off about 80%. I lost everything in a chapter seven bankruptcy. And I came close enough to ending my life that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Mm. Spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger. (laughs) Uh, I tell that story in my keynote. I told it two weeks ago in Philadelphia and a friend of mine was in the audience. He'd never heard me say that. So he comes up afterwards and he goes, Hey man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, Hey man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Exactly. (laughs) So, uh, didn't pull the trigger. I turned out my life insurance policy. A lot of people don't know this, but life insurance policies often have a two year suicide clause. Yep. You kill yourself in the first 24 months, they, they just give your premiums back. If you wait till 24 months in a day, then my wife would have gotten a million dollars. And I refused to leave my wife both brokenhearted and destitute. So when I realized I, had, I only had the policy 22 months, I had two months to wait before I could kill myself. Wow. And in an ironic twist, and I've heard other people who have chronic suicidality say this, because I knew that at two months in a day, I could check out. Mm-hmm. That uh, that helped me stay alive for those two months, knowing I was sitting in the window seat in the exit row, and that at two months in a day, I could complete the suicide. So in a strange way, my chronic suicidality has kept me alive. Very interesting. You know, I, ha- I interviewed a friend of mine. It's been in the last year. He's a young guy. Um, I think he's in his early thirties now, but when he was, I'm going to get the age wrong, but I think he was around 26, right? 20, yeah, 26, 27. He had just gone through a divorce. He was losing a business and he wasn't really happy. He wasn't in great shape, but he wasn't like, you know, overly obese and everything. And very similar to what you said, he gave himself six months and he's like, I, I'm going to do this in six months, but between now and six months, I'm going to go do everything I want to do that I said I'm going to do. And the amazing thing is, again, he's still here. It became his life work because now his company is called The Bucket List Life, and he helps ah. people go live their bucket lists. And because he went and lived his, he ran with the bulls, he hiked Machu Picchu. Yeah, I mean, I can't even remember everything that he did in that six months time. But he said, you know, it's really interesting. The thing that I most wanted to do when I started doing my bucket list, it was my bucket list that kept me alive. And now is the reason I'm here. So, really Well, and I did a TEDx talk mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Right. And yeah, and by the way, that one, I sent that in and they called me the next day. You're on. Wow. Okay. wow. Well, and what it is, is again, um, 
I was married to a lovely woman, but miserable. Selling yeah. insurance, great business, miserable. Mm-hmm. I was not going to open mic nights. This is in the early 80s. Yeah. I really believed that I was born to be a comedian. And so the thought occurred to me I was going to kill myself. And that was a very empowering thought because I realized, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try stand-up comedy. If it works, mm-hmm. which I think it will, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. And the difference between me and a, and a neuronormal or neurotypical person, mm-hmm. let's say I had a twin brother, same yep. situation. Yep. I'm married, job, didn't like it, thought he should be doing comedy, but was neuronormal, not depressed or suicidal. Mm-hmm. Right. Come to the same juncture, I could, I could, I could do stand-up comedy. But if it doesn't work, oh God, I would lose everything. Well, I have nothing to lose. Right. And I've bumped into a number of people, entrepreneurs and other entertainers, who have the very same thought process. That's why mm-hmm. they're doing what they're doing today. Is because they thought, well, if I keep doing this, I'm gonna kill myself. I might as well give it a shot. Yep. Yep. In fact, my friend I was just talking about his thing that kept him moving forward was when he finally said to himself. What is the, what if this is the worst it ever got? What if this is my worst? And that was when things started to move because he's like, I can't go any lower. It's not going to get any worse. And that was when the inspiration came for him. So, um, so for our listeners, I, I want to kind of just explore this cause I know what it means, but this depressive disorder, I would not classify myself there, but I do take my meds daily to just like keep me balanced. And I don't, I'm, I'm very fortunate because I'm on a very low dosage of this stuff. But um, let's talk about the chronic suicidality. Let's really explain that to the the listeners because I know it's it's basically you just have chronic thoughts of suicide on a pretty regular basis, right? Yes, it's uh, it. And when I speak, Rick, uh, I think almost every time I've spoken, somebody has come up afterwards who has it. Yeah. Didn't know it had a name. Just yeah. thought there was some kind of freak. Yeah. And what it is, is the way I explain it, I explained in my first TED Talk when I came out as depressed and suicidal, which nobody knew, not even my wife. Right. I explained it this way. A couple of years, uh, suicide, the idea of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems mm-hmm. large and small. When mm-hmm. I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts, unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. Mm. And that's chronic suicidality. I find myself sitting at a railroad crossing you know the arms are coming down the lights are flashing i look over the train and think you know wonder how hard i'd have to hit that crossing bar Mm. to uh, go through that one and not through the other one so i end up on the tracks not on the other side all right and it's i've had that so long it really is nothing more for me than a math problem right uh, and it's just and it's just a thought. I mean, it's like you know, we a lot of times when you're doing this work about you know any kind of personal development work, there's always that. Okay, well, let's just let's just watch our thoughts. Let's just watch them come through and then they go past and come through and they come past. And I've had another friend who is in the same space. It's like they've gotten to the point where they know that thought's there. They see it. They recognize it. They're very mindful of it, and then it just moves on. But it isn't like okay, let's really do the follow through. So what? what keeps you or in general, what I'm going to say in you from doing the follow through at this stage? Well, and that's going to be part of what I do in my next Ted talk. If I can ever get another one, mm-hmm. uh, normally if somebody's depressed, the protocol is you ask them, are you depressed? Yes. Right. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Yes. Do you have a plan? Well, you know, I'm, I'm uh, I have chronic suicidal. You got to have a dozen plans. Which one do you right, want to hear? Right. Exactly. Uh, the next question 
um, should be, I believe, well, are you going to kill yourself? And my answer would be no. Mm. Why would I kill myself? I think if, if that were the next question and people could answer it honestly without worrying about, you know, a 5150, as they say in California, being locked down for three days, then more people would come forward with those thoughts. And then the next question, I believe the last one, and I think it's important. If I say I'm not going to kill myself, you should ask, okay, well then tell me why not. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you end on a positive note. And here's my why not, Rick. I realized this back in January. I was at uh, I was in Billings, Montana. I had just spoken at the University of Montana Billings. Mm-hmm. I'm standing outside waiting for the young man to come back with his pickup to take me to the hotel. It's snowing. It's dark. There's a street light a little ways away, so it's not fully dark. Right. So I was coming down, and I'm thinking about those people who come up after my keynote and the relief they feel to find out they're not alone. It has a name. They're not freaks. And I think what I've done is I've taken them just far enough off course, yep. the course to suicide that perhaps they'll live a full life. So I'm thinking about these people. It's snowing. It's, you know, it's dark. And I thought, oh, dear God, I am George Bailey and it's a wonderful life. <laughs> I've been shown what people's lives would be like if they didn't hear me speak and, and never realized they were not alone. And so the reason... And my next thought was, oh, I can't kill myself because I would take all those people with me. Yep. And then the comic in me said, next line, they would probably pursue me through eternity. You couldn't wait a week. <laughs> oh, but it's yeah, so, so that's, true. That's, that's what keeps me alive. And, and I've heard other people say, if it weren't for my chronic suicidality, you know, the option. Right. I would have killed myself a long time ago. Mm. But mm. I know. You know, it's once you cross that barrier and you're willing to do it, then, you know, it's you know, right. It's, but again, like I said, I can't do it now because I would be doing a disservice to everybody who will hear me speak in the future and perhaps, you know, take them off mm-hmm. that course, that path to suicide. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Frank, because people have asked me over the years. So originally this was the coming out lounge. This is what this podcast was um, entitled. And then we made it into life uncloseted and people said, why did you do this? And I said, because I got to a point where I love supporting my community, but it isn't just about them. And if I had ended the coming out lounge, I would have done a disservice to a whole lot of people. Instead, what I chose to do was open the doors even wider and invite more people in to tell their coming out stories so that everybody can see we're all not that different. It may be a sexuality thing. It may be a suicide thing. It may be a depression thing. It may be I'm going to leave my corporate job, whatever it is. But these coming out stories are all the same thing. And I feel like if I had not continued it, similar to what you said, my thought was pretty much if I don't continue this in some way, and it wasn't coming from ego, if I don't continue this in some way, there's going to be a whole lot of people even if it's only a few hundred people a year that they need to hear these stories so that they can move forward. And that's why I didn't quit. And well, my big thing for us to do. Uh, my, uh, see, my, my co-host on my, our new podcast, by the way, mm-hmm. called the suicide prevention punchline mm-hmm. is uh, she's a comic and a Ted talker. And her second Ted talk was on coming out how do you come out to your friends and family as depressed, which has one stigma Yep. and suicidal, another stigma. Yep. She would tell you, and I've we've joked about it. They would have been easier 
for her to come out as gay because you know that's mom dad i got something to tell you it's very important you know i'm depressed and suicidal oh my god i was, I was hoping you were going to be gay uh you know because most people can wrap their mind around that right wrapping your mind around why someone would want to end their life and between you and me and i'm sure you mm-hmm. know this not about ending your life it's about ending the pain absolutely um yes yeah, so, and i describe my TED talk when I was 52 as coming out, I came out as depressed and suicidal because nobody knew. Mm-hmm. So, uh, by the way, just a sidebar, both my folks were gay, my mom and my dad. Hmm. Interesting. They met in the high school in the late thirties in North Carolina, you know, North Carolina today yeah. is not the place you want to come screaming out of the closet. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Cause you have to figure out which bathroom you're going to use. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. So, but they, they were crazy about one another. Uh, and they both wanted to start a family. Yep. So they got married and they did, they tried to adopt, but back then there weren't that many babies up for adoption. Mm-hmm. And so they did the old fashioned way. And my mother got pregnant, carried to term nine months and it passed away very shortly after birth. I waited a year or so, got pregnant again, carried it to term. It passed away shortly after birth and where she found the courage to try a third time, I, I have no, I mean, I, I'm not a woman. I, I, I don't know where you um, find, and, and a fourth time, my sister is is uh, 18 months uh, younger than I. Wow. And yeah, so when somebody says to me that lesbians are not qualified to birth and raise children, my advice to them at that point, you need to back out of uh, <laughs> the range right. of my right hook. Right, exactly. Because she is the most courageous person I ever knew. I mean, I don't know where you find people gave my father a hard time when she got pregnant the third time. Mm-hmm. I did. Why did you do that? And he said, look, you know, Dixie, it mm-hmm. wasn't my call. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I also think that that's probably what gave you the courage. I mean, I always look back at where does this courage stuff come from and whether it's in our DNA or in it's our social upbringing, however we're socialized. I always look at where the person is. And as you were talking through that, Frank, it hit me that that's probably a lot of where you got the foundation to say, I am going to talk about this stuff. I am going to have conversations. I'm not going to let this be the hidden dirty secret any longer because somewhere along the way, your mom showed you the courage of what it takes to just say, this is what we do and we just keep going. Well, and it's also, Rick, another reason that I don't end my life because, because my mother worked so hard to bring me here. Mm-hmm. I, I cannot dishonor that effort, that courage by, by ending it early. Mm. That makes sense. It makes total sense. It makes total sense. So as this moves forward and you continue to move through your life, you've explained, you know, why you don't do it and all this stuff. And I love these questions because I have, you know, I have dealt with a few clients in my work as a coming out coach. I will ask some of those questions like, so if you did what, how would you do it? You know, because that's my signal of I'm in some territory that I'm not trained for, but I know enough to like, okay, let's ask that question so that I can say, you know, I really think it's important for you to talk to a therapist at this point. I will support you as a coach the best I can. But, you know, we, we need to get you some more help that can really help you there. And, of course, I have all the numbers for suicide prevention and everything is, you know, in my all my Rolodexes, all that stuff ready to go in case somebody goes there. I'm curious, though, why do you think, and I'm making an assumption, but I think my assumption's pretty solid here. 
Why do you think this is such a hidden epidemic for men? Oh, Lord. Yeah, it is an epidemic. Eight out of 10 suicides in the U.S. are white males age 45, 54. Wow. Yeah, and there are a number of reasons. The one is it's the jobs people think the manufacturing jobs went overseas. Right. Only 12 to 15 percent went overseas. The other 85, 88 percent have right. gone to robots and AI mm-hmm. automation. And think about that. That's a lot of jobs that somebody blue collar, maybe a union gig, good wages, allowed them to you know climb into the middle class. Right. And the job disappears. Yep. And you know, men's egos are often tied to their employment. Absolutely. And secondly, men, and if um, I, I recorded on our website for the book we wrote, Guts, Written, and Grind, I recorded the forward by a gentleman who invented something called QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer. It's, a, it's training and spotting depression, thoughts of suicide, and what to do, what mm. to say. He says men, he works with men who are suicidal. Mm-hmm. A lot of therapists don't want to work with someone who's suicidal, men who are suicidal, because they're afraid the family will sue if the man completes. Mm-hmm. And he says, in his experience, men wait way too long to, to address, say, a lump in their testicle or to get a PSA test or colonoscopy or they rationalize chest pains away. Right. Because they're men. They're, you know, yep. big boys don't cry. Exactly. Uh, so then they, so they don't reach out and that's, that's a big part of the problem is rather than reach mm-hmm. out, they reach for the bottle, they reach for some kind of drug and spiral downward. You know, if you're 50 years old, you've been working in a manufacturing plant your entire working life and all of a sudden you're adrift mm-hmm. and support your family. There's a lot of pride that, you know, that goes with that. Yep. And so, the that's that's why we the book it's called guts grit and the grind a men's yeah. mental fitness manual yeah the idea was one the author sarah gear one of my co-authors went to the bookstore to find a book on men's mental health and couldn't find it thought well yep. there's a vacuum yep so uh yeah so what we what we know is men take advice from other men uh, my wife will tell you she could give me a nobel prize winning idea and i would poo poo it but if the mailman told me the same thing, I'm on my way to Oslo to get the, you know, pick up the hardware. Absolutely. So we had, we have 42 stories in the book, two of which are mine, mm-hmm. of men with a wide variety of issues, bankruptcy, alcoholism, gambling addiction, whatever. Yep. 500 words are things are good. The middle 500 words are things went to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. And the last 500 words, here's how I am coping mm-hmm. in hopes that men would see how another man was coping with the same problem and be willing to take that advice. Plus the book is chock full of, like you said, resources, phone numbers, clinical yeah. advice, things you can do in, in all of these situations. Now, the way the book came about was I got a call from the two women, Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas, psychologist mm-hmm. and Sarah Gare, suicide prevention um, trainer. Yep. And they said, we'd like you to make the book funny. Would you do that? And I said, wait a minute. You two ladies are writing a book on men's mental fitness. Mm-hmm. You might need, oh, I don't know, a man? Mm-hmm. They go, oh, my God. I said, I'll do it on two conditions. I'll make it funny, and I'll. it's full of um, automobile metaphors, Rick. We make it look mm-hmm. like an automobile owner's manual, so a guy yeah. might pick it up. Or if another guy sees him, he won't think he's reading a self-help book. Right, exactly. And it's all full of 
automobile metaphors like, don't you wish you had a check engine light on your brain? So you mm. go in and, and the mental mechanic goes, Bob, yeah, no wonder you're depressed. You're a quart low on serotonin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I said, I'll do it on two, two conditions. One, I'm a co-author, which I am. Yeah. And two, I want to voice the book for Audible. Mm. So um, that, that was the deal. And That's I, awesome, man. Yeah. It's, and, you know, it's, I don't know if you know this, in Australia, they have something called the shed movement. Mm-hmm. In Australia, a shed is a garage. Okay. And it's well known that men will share with other men real feelings if they're not sitting across from one another at Starbucks looking each other in the eye. Hmm. If they're both underneath the hood of a car or they're both in a boat facing opposite directions fishing, Interesting. then they have much more unguarded conversations if they're doing something. So in Australia... They have the shed movement, which is they take guys who like to work on cars. They put a couple of them in a garage with a car and they talk or they like woodworking or they like mm-hmm. metalworking or they like things that you would normally do in a garage. Absolutely. And then they can have actual conversations about things that matter because they're not, you know, gazing into each other's eyes at Starbucks. Interesting. Um, you know, and I've seen that done in the work that I do because I, I have another podcast, which after this conversation, I think I'm going to be asking you back to be on that podcast <laughs> it's for guys 40 years and over. But what's interesting is I do this work with men and I've noticed this in, in circles and I've always done a lot of men's work. I'm like, no, 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 look, no, don't put this in a No, don't do the circle thing because as soon as we get in a circle, oh God. There's, there's all these things that starts to happen for us guys. First, there can be shame. Second, there can be, oh my God, I'm back on the playground and I'm, I'm, if I'm feeling like I'm going to get bullied or I'm not man enough, that shit starts to show up. So what I do instead is I get people in a circle, but I have them face outward. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Brilliant. it's really interesting because we'll start in the circle like, hey, just tell us your name or whatever. And I'm like, okay, now let's get a little closer and now let's tell, tell everybody something that you really enjoyed doing. And now let's step in a little bit closer and let's talk about the thing you'd most like to do in your life. So as soon as we get to that one, we start like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Now we're starting to get a little bit open, but they'll still answer that question. And then I'll have them pivot for the next question. And the next question is always share out loud something that scares the shit out of you. (laughs) But because I have them pivot away, it's kind of interesting because at first it's a little bit slow, but then once the first guy goes, it kind of happens. But if I have had them facing each other, it is like pulling freaking teeth because well, well, I can't let anybody, you know, uh, you know, the whole macho man sort of stuff starts to show up, but it's that interesting little pivot away. So you're not looking at each other that opens the doorway. And of course, then from there, once we do a couple of rounds of this really intimate stuff, then we pivot back in and face each other and really say, thank you for sharing that. You know, you find somebody in the group, you, you know, I pick a guy and say, find the person in the group that you know said something that really touched you and look them in the eye and just thank them. That's all you have to do. Just look them in the eye and say, thank you for sharing what you shared. And that's when the floodgates start to open up. It's just amazing stuff to see. Well, and we're hoping the same thing will happen with the book. If you've got an alcohol problem and you read the story of the guy who comes out, tells the world in a book. Yep that I have by name, you know, I am, I have this problem. Uh, then we're hoping that will help bring down those walls. And again, uh, male, white males, especially 45, 54 Mm -hmm. are an endangered species at this point. Yep. As are, by the way, for so many reasons, but you know, yeah, 
Yeah. But, but it, also teenagers. Uh, yes. The suicide rate among teenagers has doubled since 2012. We're actually working on um, it's essentially smartphone addiction. Is the um, We have a fancy name for it. But it's it, the 2012. It's doubled since 2012. And the, the thing that happened in 2012 that may be coincidence, mm-hmm. maybe, um, ca, you know, causality. Yep is that's the point at which more than 50% of the people in the United States owned a smartphone. Wow. So is it causality? Is it a correlation? Is it a coincidence? Um, mm. But also in addition to the suicide rate, the um, rate reported rate among teenagers for major depressive disorder spiked, has spiked, same with anxiety. So we think it's tied to the, you know, the screen time, the yep. cell phone. Yep. Plus then you get the, you know, the element of bullying on Facebook. And- Absolutely. All that. Anyway, that, that's our next question. Very interesting, and, and I think it's it's something I observed today at the gym, and I didn't realize we would actually have this conversation. But I have my phone at the gym because I work with a distance trainer. So what I do is I look at the exercises he gives me each day, and so I'm on my phone a lot at the gym, but I'm not on my phone like talking to people. I'm like looking at the exercises, logging how much weight I did and everything. And a friend of mine was there this morning and he comes up to me and says, hi. And, um, you know, we had a quick little casual conversation and then he came over and he goes, you know, you get a lot more done if you weren't on your phone. I said, I'm on my phone because of this. And so we had this whole conversation. He goes, wow, I made an assumption there. He goes, cause so many guys here at the gym, they have their phones. I'm like, really? And so I, um, of course, immediately started kind of watching, you know, the gym and looking at the guys going, of course, you know, being a gay guy, I'm always a little leery to be doing that. It's like, okay, you know, I don't want him to think I'm checking you out. But there were more guys in the gym on their phones than there were gals in the gym on their phone. Oh, man. It was really interesting. So anyway, it just kind of ties to this. So the book is out. It's It came out in August. And all this good stuff is going to be happening. We hope with it. What would be the thing that you would hope most for the book to do? What would, I mean, besides a bestseller, but what would you really like <laughs> to see the book do? Uh, save lives, bottom line. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Men, uh, give men the opportunity to see how other men are handling whatever it is their particular issue is. What we think is going to happen, Rick, is men will buy the book, I believe, some. Yeah. Uh, I believe more women will buy the book for a man in their yeah. life. I agree. We did some research in the beginning to see what men problem, what men thought their top five problems are in life. Mm-hmm. And then we asked women what they thought men's top five problems were. And the men's list resembled the women's list. Women put money at the top, number one. Men put it on the list, but closer to number five. Mm-hmm. And then we asked men, what kind of help would you want from someone, a woman or, or other? And they made a list of things and asked the women, what kind of help do you think men want and need from mm-hmm. their partner and they made a list and the two were completely different. Wow. Yeah. So that was, that was like, we need to get this book. We need to get it done yeah. now. Exactly. Because, I can't, I can't yeah. wait to see this and read it because, because of the work I do, I'm always looking at this stuff too. It's like, okay, what are, what is it the guys are struggling with? And I can tell you from my other podcast, uh, 40 plus real men, real talk. The thing that I find money <laughs> obviously shows up really quickly which yep. is usually tied to career. You know, they're either, they're not happy in their career. Um, relationships shows up pretty dang high on that list too, whether it's relationships because they're married or with a girlfriend or a boy, you know, husband or whatever. 
but in general relationships, like just, I have a hard time being in relationship. I struggle with it. Even though you may look at the guy and go, Oh yeah, he looks like he's got man. So many guys even struggle with the friendship thing. One that I was a little surprised at so far, just in the guys that I've been having on the podcast, one that I was really surprised at was this sense of, I'm not, and I hate to use the word purpose, but I'm going to, I don't feel like I'm doing what I'm here to do. And it has nothing to do with career. It's more, I don't know that I'm living my life the way I'm meant to be living it. And I always thought that, but I was surprised when I started hearing guys say that. So, um, but yeah, we, I will definitely get the book and I can't wait to share it. And definitely would love to have you come back on that other podcast. And Yeah. And I have two stories in there. Uh, there, there is, there is one um, in, in my first marriage, I was not um, faithful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the story in the book is I, it's anonymous. The, the author is anonymous. And I didn't do it because, I mean, I, I'm forthright about, you know, it was a huge mistake on my part. I should have just gotten divorced when I realized that was going to happen. And it would have been, you know, that would have been the, the um, thing to do. Yep. But I don't want my, I don't want to blow back on my ex-wife. You know, sure. how could you not know he was doing that? How would you, why would you stay with a guy like that? Yeah. So that's, that one is anonymous. So. Yep. Yeah. You know, here's something interesting that I found, and I think you'll find this interesting too. So, you know, I think you're spot on. I think a lot of women will buy this book for guys they know. And my book, frankly, my dear, I'm gay. (laughs) I have more women send me, in fact, I just got an email from somebody two days ago who want to give this book to either somebody they know, a brother, an uncle, a friend, every once in a while, a husband. <laughs> and it's so interesting because I never get those from guys. I get guys who say, hey, I bought your book. But I get more women saying, I'd really like to share your book with such and so, but I just don't know if I should. And I almost always say, no, I don't think you should. Because coming out is a very personal journey. And um, you know, you're, you're kind of pointing a loaded gun. If you <laughs> accidentally misfire, you may lose a really good friendship, but I get it. It's very interesting. And then of course, if we go back to, you know, I'm going to say something that I don't like the term, but if you go back to the old days of everybody's got a fag hag, it's like, Hmm, no wonder <laughs> there's always a good girlfriend who has a, you know, a gay friend who they're just like totally into. And I find it really interesting that that's how my book gets into some hands because some women are like, I've had, I had one woman order like three copies and she literally went to friends' houses while they were at work and left the book on the front porch. Oh, I'm like, I hope you wore gloves when you did that. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, so anyway, but I love this conversation, Frank. I'm so glad we got connected. If you could leave somebody with some advice before we wrap it up humorous or however you want to do it, it's Frank's way who may be really struggling with this depression or the chronic suicidality. What would you love to leave them with? Uh, two things, one for neuronormal people. Mm-hmm. Who often ask me when they have a friend or loved one who's struggling, what do I say? And I say, don't say anything, just listen. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is, and I tell, I say this in my keynote, if you are suicidal, mm-hmm. please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text, yep. you know, connect to 741741. Uh, if you are just having a really awful day, call somebody crazy. Mm. And I give out my phone number in all my keynotes because mm-hmm. I tell them, look, here's the deal. If you call me and you're just having a really awful day, yep. I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to 
as they say, should all over you. You should do this and you should do that. And you should try fish oil. Right. Uh, I'm just going to, as a friend of mine who's double diagnosed with alcoholism and depression, I'm just mm. going to co-sign your bullshit. Mm. I'm just going to listen and go, oh, dear God, oh, cry. Just, oh, how could you possibly survive that? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, seek out. I meet once a week on Mondays with, I call it my crazy coffee clutch with three or four friends who have mental illness because we can take our game faces off. Yep. And be ourselves. Yep. And share if we've got difficulties or triumphs or whatever it is, or just dark, really dark jokes, mm-hmm. you know, things that would horrify yep. neuronormal people. Yep. So oh, anyway, yeah. that would be it. Yeah. If you're neuronormal and you have a friend who's depressed and having thought of suicide, just listen. Mm-hmm. And if you are suicidal, call the hotline. If you're just having a really bad day, call a crazy person and, and you know. Yep. You know, it's interesting, the parallels here, because when I get asked that question, should I, should I just confront my friend and help them come out? My answer is no. You should just let them be who they are. You can be subtle in how you support. Like you could, you know, of course, when I first started speaking, it was, you know, back in the day when, you know, Ellen was like, sorry, you know, really becoming big and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, I would say, oh, yeah, did you see that episode of such and such where it had the two gay characters? It was so good. Or Will and Grace, did you see? You know, it's kind of like, say the things that says, hey, I'm supportive without, <laughs> bitch, I know you're gay, come out of the closet. You know, you, you don't want to do that. And secondly, if you're really struggling with this, call the Trevor hotline or call the LGBTQ coming out hotline. Yeah. It's like we have such similar paths. And I think what I've drawn from this is, again, all of us have closets and the closets may be slightly different, but we're all going through the same stuff, just different pathways. And there are very, very, very similar systems of support that we can all do if we just give each other the blessing and the guidance to be human to one another. And I think that's and what really shared. One last note, yeah. uh, because people who are, who go through conversion, mm-hmm. quote therapy, end quote, yep. I have a much higher suicide rate. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Don't, if you have a gay friend, don't recommend. Mm -mm, mm -mm, Yeah. mm -mm. Hey, listen, you can pray the gay away. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Just like I can pray the fat away. So there we go. um, Yeah. Well, you're in the gym. That you can do something about. Yeah, exactly. Get in the gym. That's how you get the fat off if you're not eating while you're on the treadmill. So, um, Anyway, well, Frank, I enjoyed this conversation, my friend. Um, let's give a shout out again. The book is Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental fitness manual. And your podcast is? Podcast is The Suicide Prevention Punchline. Nice. Love it. Love it. Love it. And if you all want to connect with Frank, there will be tons of stuff on the show page. We'll have a link over to the book. We will have links to the podcast. And Really seriously, if you need some help, call the hotlines. They are your best friend when you don't think you have a best friend. So thanks again for being here, Frank. So appreciate you, buddy. My pleasure. From the closet? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. From my closet to your closet, you're calling this one a wrap. So thanks. Yeah, and I've been inspired, Rick. As soon as we get done talking, I'm getting out of the closet. (laughs) There you go. That's awesome, bro. Thanks so much. Hey, 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 Life Uncloseted family. Another episode of Life Uncloseted has come to an end and it is time for all of us 
to sashay away and go face our fears, make those bold moves, and stand up to living our life without apology. But before you do, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you hop over to iTunes or Spotify or Podbean or wherever it is that you're listening to this and just give us a little bit of love if you like what we're doing here at Life Unclogged. Here's what it does. It helps other people find the show. It helps other people get to know what we're all about. And you just might help change life. In fact, if you really want to change a life, we'd love it if you just ask a friend to take a listen and see what they think. So that's it. Love you all deeply. I'm Rick Clemens, the host of Life Uncloseted. And never stop stepping out, stepping up, and stepping into living your life uncloseted.